We're in the book of Daniel. Last week we got barely started into chapter 9. We were short on time. We only got through these first three verses, Daniel 9, 1 through 3. Actually through 2, pardon me. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, in the first year of his reign, the reign of Darius, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So as we mentioned last week in closing, Daniel is recognizing through his own study of the writings of those who had gone before him, in this case the writings of Jeremiah, Daniel recognized and realized that the time of their captivity in Babylon was getting close to being over. But it's very interesting what his response to that is, and that's what we'll look at today as we look at Daniel's prayer from Daniel chapter 9. Let's pray. Father God, we ask your blessing upon this time in your word. And even as we have heard this morning about how the pilgrims were committed and dedicated to the truth of your word and desiring to base their lives and their worship upon the truth of your word and not the dictates of man, we ask that you would give us further insight and understanding into your ways, Lord, your truth. Bless this time of study now, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, verse 3, we'll continue on now. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Like the song we sang this morning. Those are acts of humility as we come before a mighty God. And we read in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 that the Apostle Paul tells us to not be anxious for anything, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known unto God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So here, Daniel's coming with his prayer, his supplications, his fasting, his sackcloth and ashes. And uh, this, as we will see, is a remarkable prayer of confession you can find similar prayers in Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9. But we will see in this passage that Daniel associates himself with the sins of his people, the Jews, the people of Israel. He associates himself with their sins 32 times. Think about that, 32 times. And this is how he approaches God. One, on the basis of his loyal love, which the Hebrew word is hased. It means loyal love or unfailing love. Number two, his covenant with Israel, which we'll see in verse four. He confesses their sins in verses five through 10. And fourthly, he acknowledges the fact that they deserve judgment in verses 11 through 14. And fifthly, he calls upon God for his mercy in verses 15 through 19. So you can imagine that this passage is a tremendous model for every one of us in how to approach God in prayer, particularly as it relates to what Ted talked about this morning, and that is coming before the Lord in repentance for the sins of our nation 
that we might be restored, that we might be healed, that we might be forgiven. But it also applies to our own lives on an individual level as well. So here we go, verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. And again, that is always the first step as we approach the Lord. Confession simply means that we agree with God. Whatever it is that God has to say, He's right, and if we disagree, we're wrong. He's always right, and we're only right if we agree with Him. And one of the things that we must agree with is that God says, we've all sinned and come short of His glory. Now, according to James in his book, it's the righteous man or woman whose prayers are powerful and effective. And you might think, well, then that leaves me out. My prayers are probably bouncing off the walls and off the ceiling. No. And this is why I bring this up. We've just seen how Daniel prayed to the Lord his God and made confession. Look at this, James 5.16. What does James say? First of all, confess your trespasses to one another. Now we know first and foremost, as King David wrote in the Psalms, it against you and you only, Lord, that I have sinned. And so we need to recognize all sin is ultimately against God, but there's also benefit. And this, of course, James is speaking of confessing your sins to one another within the body of Christ. You have to exercise wisdom on who you open up to and who you share your heart with, uh, someone that you can trust, someone near and dear to you, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who's not going to use it against you. And many people have been hurt by that, haven't they? Maybe you've been hurt by that. You've opened up your heart to someone and they turned around and used the information against you. So exercise wisdom, but at the same time understand there is power, there is healing, there is strength and confessing our trespasses to one another. You know how the devil gets victory over us? By keeping things hidden, keeping things in the dark. And so one of the big deceptions that people struggle with is, well, I can't tell anybody because if I did, they wouldn't like me anymore. They would reject me. They would turn away from me. But that's the enemy trying to just keep those, those sins hidden and in the dark. Jesus said, that which is hidden will be made known. And that which is in the darkness will be brought to light. The message there is one way or another it's going to come out anyway. So beat the devil to the punch. Find, you know, a, a leader in the church, a pastor, a close personal friend that's a believer that you can confess those trespasses to. Again, first and foremost to God. But on the earthly plane, on the human level, it's also important and beneficial to confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. If we're open and honest with one another, then we can be more effective in praying for each other. Isn't that correct? You know, a lot of people play, pray shotgun prayers, I call them. Oh, Lord, just bless all the missionaries in the world. Amen. Wouldn't it be better if you knew some specific missionaries you could pray for and target your prayers on them? I'm not judging or criticizing or putting anybody down if you pray that kind of a prayer but the more focused and specific we can be with our prayers, I believe, the more effective they are. It can be a little challenging at times. My prayer list seems to get longer and longer when you're naming specific individuals, but I really think that's what God wants us to do. So confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be what? Healed. Does that mean just physical healing? No. No. 
And of course, we know that not all people we pray for, for illness, for sickness, for disease, they don't always get healed. Is that because God's not a good God? No, it's because we don't always know or understand his perfect will. Does that mean we should stop praying for the sick? Absolutely not. But folks, you know what the most important healing is? It's the spiritual healing that takes place inside of us because that's the part of us that's going to live on for eternity. These bodies are temporary, are they not? Right? But so many people need healing, not just physically. You know what? If you die in perfect health and go to hell, what difference did it make? Right? You could be Jack LaLanne. You probably don't even remember him. You old geezers like me do. Oh, you could be like The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, you know? Big and beautiful and strong and muscular. But if you don't know Jesus, you're going to go to hell anyway. I don't care how healthy you are. But if you know Jesus and you're sick as a dog, you're in good shape. Because you're going to go to heaven. You're going to live with God for eternity. Paul even wrote, bodily exercise profiteth little. But spiritual exercise is of great gain, to paraphrase it. So healing, we have to understand that takes place on many levels, emotionally, spiritually, as well as physically. And if you're struggling with some deep emotional issues, some hurts, some wounds, guilt and shame because of things you've done that you know you shouldn't have done, you don't get healed by hiding it, just like you don't get well from a physical illness by hiding it. You've got to acknowledge it. You've got to go see your doctor. You've got to get the proper diagnosis and the proper treatment. The same thing applies on the spiritual level. You're not going to get healed by hiding it, concealing it, denying it, ignoring it. So confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically. And then he tags it with this. The effective, fervent, that's intense, sincere, dedicated, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. And again, when we read about these things in the Bible where it speaks of the man, it's speaking of mankind. Everybody's included. Men, women, boys, and girls. This is not a, a sexist book that we're studying, the Bible. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man or woman avails much. It's very effective. But notice the process that you go through. That's why Daniel, whom we know was a, a very righteous man, one of the greatest men of God who ever walked this planet, and yet we see him coming before God in this prayer, starting right off with confession, not just on behalf of himself, but on behalf of his people, the entire Israelite populace. So confess, pray, get your heart and mind in the right place, and then the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man. So how do you become righteous? We will never be perfect in this life, will we? If we could be, Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. We will never be perfect in this life. Although we seek after that, we strive for that, we fall miserably short all the time, right? But the way you come to that place where God sees you as righteous so that your prayers will be effective 
is practicing confession. God already knows it anyway. You're not hiding anything from Him, right? Confession, uh, prayer with God, with brothers and sisters in Christ, with pastors and leaders in the church, however, whenever, and why ever it's needed. And that that'll put you in that place where you're mentally, emotionally, spiritually in the right place to have an effective prayer life. So Daniel comes, he prays to the Lord my God, and he made confession. And see, Daniel knew this, he understood it, so he starts his prayer with this. And if we are to be people who offer up powerful, effective prayers to God, we must start with confession of any known sin in our lives. Proverbs 15, 29, notice this again. The Lord is far from the wicked. Jesus died on the cross for their sins, yes. But the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And again, the way that we are made righteous, the way that we are seen by God as righteous, is not by being perfect, because we can't be, but being quick to practice confession whenever and however it's needed, to be open and honest with God. Now the enemy's going to come to you and he's going to tell you, well, you know, how many times is God going to forgive you? You keep doing that sin over and over again, you keep asking God for forgiveness, at some point he's not going to forgive you anymore. Have you ever heard that voice? But Jesus taught Peter, remember? Peter comes to Jesus, he says, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Seven times? Peter thought, boy, that'll make me sound spiritual. Seven times? And Jesus says, no, Peter, I tell you 70 times seven, which really is metaphorical or symbolic for an innumerable amount of times. In other words, for the believer in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, forgiveness should be something that we continue to practice without end, just as God continually forgives us. The message there is, the devil may tell you, hey, all your forgivenesses have run out. You haven't got any more left. Don't ask God to forgive you again, because he won't. How many of you believe that? No, it's a lie from the pit of hell, right? You've got to learn to discern the true voice of God from the voice of the devil. We've talked about this so many times. The enemy will try to heap condemnation on you. God will convict you by his Holy Spirit but whenever it's conviction, there's an element of love and grace and mercy involved. God will show you your sin, but he shows it to you because he wants you to stay in right relationship with him. The devil will show you your sin because he wants you to give up. He wants you to hang it up, throw in the towel. Don't ever do that. So he continues. Oh Lord, great and awesome God. So the beginning of Daniel's prayer reminds us of another great prayer recorded in the scripture, Matthew 6, 9, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In this manner, therefore, pray, says Jesus to his disciples, our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy is your name. Just like Daniel starts here by first off, acknowledging the greatness and the awesomeness of God. That's another, I believe, important element in our prayers, because if we're going to continue on in prayer, not only in confession and repentance, but also in supplication, intercession, 
we need to remind ourselves of how great God is. Nothing is impossible with God. With God, all things are possible. You are the great and awesome God. I honor you. I worship you. I praise you. Bring glory to his name as you come to him in prayer. Who keeps his covenant. One translation says covenant of love. This is that where that word has said comes from that I mentioned. His covenant of love and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. So again, he's acknowledging the qualities of God, his, his said, his unfailing love, his mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And I've told you many times, don't ever demand that God give you what you deserve. Some people do that. They think they deserve something great. They need to look in the mirror of God's word and find out what they really deserve. Daniel approaches God confidently here on the basis of God's has said, his unfailing love, his faithfulness to keep his promises. And notice, God keeps his covenant with those who love him and obey his commands. Verse 4, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and those who keep his commandments. Some people just kind of cruise through life doing their own thing with the attitude, well, if God is a loving God, then surely he'll bless me. It doesn't really work like that. It's a covenant relationship. As we love him and obey him and walk with him, that puts us in the position to be blessed by him. And just like as was the case with Israel, we've already talked about this today, our disobedience will result in chastisement but God remains faithful. Again, there's a difference between the condemnation of the devil, the battering and the bruising, the use and abuse. That's how the devil works. He gives you false blessings, and then he turns around and uses you and abuses you. God will chastise us because he loves us. The Bible says those whom the Lord loves, he also chastens. If God never chastens you, then you would have to question to, does God really love me? And of course he does, but that, do I really know him? Am I really a child of God? Am I really born again? Because if I am, surely at some point I'm going to be getting some chastening because we all deserve it. I love this verse, though. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, I think. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, notice it doesn't say unfaithful. There's a difference. To be unfaithful is to be disobedient, it's to turn away from God, it's to deliberately sin against God. Faithless simply means there are times when you just don't feel like you have any faith. You feel like all your hope, your faith has drained out the bottom of your feet. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. I'm sure you've all experienced that. If you're a child of God here this morning... You've had moments of faithlessness in your life, but you've also experienced the fact that God is always faithful. Notice what it says. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What does that mean? When you're born again, you're infused with God's DNA. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't. But we are born again by the Spirit of God. We're filled with the Spirit. And Jesus said, I'm in my Father, and my Father's in me. And if you are in me, then you're also in my Father. We're all interconnected. And as such, for God to deny you 
as his child would be to deny himself. And he cannot do that. He will not do that. So even if we're faithless, we may be less than the most stellar disciple of Christ who ever came down the pike. We could probably all qualify for that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, of all people, wrote late in life, I am the chief of all sinners. Can you imagine that? And I've thought about that. I thought, if, if Paul considered himself the chief of all sinners, what does that make me? Because I know I'm no Paul. I'm no Apostle Paul, I'll tell you that. But even if we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So here comes Daniel now with verse 5, confessing, We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. All of it true. Does God already know it? Absolutely. But Daniel recognizes the need to come in confession and repentance. And here he's not just doing it for himself. In fact, the matter is, I don't think that these things even applied to Daniel. Though Daniel had remained faithful to God and remained righteous throughout his lifetime, he takes responsibility for the sins of his people. And so, think about this. We now live in a day and age where nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. We live in an age of victim mentality where everybody's a victim and everything that happens to you is somebody else's fault. Have you seen that played out in our world today, in our society? And why do you think that is? Well, from the spiritual viewpoint, from the spiritual standpoint, this is the enemy's strategy because if he can get people brainwashed and mind-controlled into believing that everything is somebody else's fault, then that means you're not responsible for your own sin either. Do you see? you see how that works? And so how do you get someone to come to that place where they're willing to confess their sins before the Lord and repent if they're living in a mentality that it's not their fault? It's somebody else's fault. Well, I wouldn't have done this if they hadn't have done that. Well, I was born this way. Lady Gaga. <laughs> I'm sorry, Gaga, that you were born that way. I honestly and sincerely will pray for you. So Daniel here recognizes his need to not only look at his own life, but to look at the lives of his people and say, you know, on behalf of my people, I repent, I confess. He didn't leave it for somebody else to do. And so, as believers, we have to take responsibility not only for our sins, but for the sins of the people or nation with which we are associated. What are the things that we need to take responsibility for and to repent for? Abortion, homosexuality, adultery, transgenderism, materialism, the list goes on and on, does it not? We don't want to be like that um, Pharisee who went to bring his offering, and then remember the guy next to him was not considered to be an upright, upstanding individual. The Pharisee's praying, he's thanking God that he's not like that vile, wretched sinner over there. We cannot be like that. We have to take responsibility as well. You know the verse, we hear it quoted a lot. Second Chronicles 7:14, if my people who are called by my name 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So, at the point in time when this was written, God's own people were engaged in wicked ways, unrighteous behavior. And I would propose to you today that that's probably the case with a large swath of the church. Just because somebody goes to church doesn't mean they're walking uprightly before God, right? And Peter wrote, judgment begins with the house of God. So, God is calling his people here, humble themselves, admit, confess your sins, pray and seek my face, turn from your wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. We know ultimately that didn't work out for Israel. And it may not work out for America either, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Right? Just like Ted was talking about this morning. We don't give up. We don't throw in the towel. We don't hang it up. We don't say, oh, well, it's too late. We're too far gone. We are to walk in faith. We're to walk in hope. Faith, hope, and love. 1 Corinthians 13, but the greatest of these is love. Verse 6. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. You could say that the decline and fall of Israel and Judah was directly connected to their unwillingness to listen to God's messengers, the prophets. In the last days, God has raised up messengers, prophets, if you will. Billy Graham would come to mind. Franklin Graham, James Dobson, in my opinion, some of these men who have taken a stand for what is right, spoken out against what is wrong, many times to their own hurt, the late Jerry Falwell, Pastor Chuck Smith, my mentor, the one who I followed and was trained up and learned from for ministry. Chuck was a very low-key kind of a guy, and yet he impacted millions of people. There's close to 2,000 Calvary chapels all over the world today. So many people impacted by his ministry, his radio ministry, his teaching. And out of that batch that I just mentioned, there's others, Dave Hunt, if you remember Dave Hunt. But only, only Franklin Graham and James Dobson are still alive. The rest have gone on to be with the Lord. And honestly, in my opinion, I don't see any new end times prophets, if you will, being raised up today. And that's another reason why I believe we're at the very end of the end. We are very, very close to the rapture of the church and the coming Antichrist. But what precipitated the downfall of Israel and Judah was their unwillingness to listen to God's messengers. Now, they had false messengers, and God comes out against them in the Old Testament. These paid priests... Paid prophets, paid to tell the people what they wanted to hear. Gee, does that sound familiar? In fact, so much of what Ted talked about this morning sounds so familiar. Now, for the pilgrims, it had to do with the oppression of the official state church. The official state church today is the secular humanists the non-believers that are dictating to us 
what we can say, what we can't say, what we can believe, what we can't believe. You see, that's the religion of America today. It's secular humanism. And they're the ones playing the part of the Church of England today. And they're trying to confine us more and more and squeeze us into a box. And that's why the pilgrims fled and came to America. I'm not saying that you should flee. I'm not sure where you would go. And again, that's the difference. In the time of the pilgrims, there was a place to go. But because we're in the last days, we're to occupy till he comes. We're to stand firm. We're to stand our ground, no matter what the cost, no matter what the consequences. We're to stand firm and stand our ground and stand for Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Verse 7. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face. You've got to love this, folks. If anybody did not have anything to be ashamed of, it was Daniel. Look at his legacy, his heritage, his history, all that he did, all that he accomplished. And yet he says, but to us, shame of face. And so, yeah, you know, in one way or another, we should all be ashamed of what's going on in this nation today. And we should take responsibility as the church, for allowing these things to happen. As it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them, because they had been dispersed to other places as well, the northern kingdom of Israel, they had been taken over by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah, where Daniel came from, had been taken over by the Babylonians. So all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. So Daniel lays the full responsibility of the expulsion of the Jews from their land at the feet of the men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel. Notice something here. In no way does Daniel blame God, recognizing that his people had reaped what they'd sown. There are those folks out there, and maybe even some in the church, whenever things go well, they want to take the credit. Whenever they go wrong, they want to blame God. I take the opposite approach. Anything good that happens in my life, I give God the credit and the glory. I don't care who else was involved on the human level. Ultimately, I give God the glory. And if anything bad happens, I always blame myself because I know it's probably my fault. And that's one of the things I've noticed, not only about the apostles, Paul in particular, but other great men and women of God who have come before us, and I've read their writings. I find that the longer they're with the Lord, the more mature they become in Christ, the older they get. They don't get arrogant and smug and cocky and superior, holier than thou. They get more and more broken and humble because the more you grow and mature in Christ, the more you realize how rotten you are and how great he is. That's how it works. If you think you've arrived and you're now at the plateau and you're this wonderful holy person, man, you better fall on your face and get right with God. 
This is nothing like the message I envisioned for today, but I guess it's the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. Again, folks, the first step towards healing and restoration is to take responsibility for our own actions. And yet oftentimes that's the last place people go. Again, like I said, the victim mentality, looking for someone else to blame. I guess the ultimate would be the Flip Wilson analogy of the devil made me do it. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers. So everyone from the top down, Daniel acknowledges, was guilty of the sins that Daniel is enumerating in his prayer. Because we've sinned against you, and I mentioned this already, although our sins do impact and affect those around us, because God is the standard of perfection, we always have to recognize that ultimately every sin we commit is against Him. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard. Anything short of that is sin. That's an ancient archery term. Sin is an ancient archery term. It means to miss the mark. Psalms, here I mentioned this from David earlier. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned. David is speaking here of his sin with Bathsheba, setting up her husband Uriah to be killed in the midst of battle. And David says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Yes, there is collateral damage. There is fallout on the human level when we sin, but ultimately it is against God that we have sinned. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. How does Daniel know this? Because of the fact that God had preserved and even blessed them in the land of their captivity. And furthermore, that he had promised to return them to their land, that's all proof positive of God's mercy and his forgiveness. Again, the difference between chastisement and condemnation. He was chastising them by allowing them to be taken into captivity, into Babylon, but the promise was after 70 years, they would be returned to their own land. Verse 10, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. Notice again, he says, all Israel. Again, though, there were some in Israel who had continued to follow God. The nation as a whole is held accountable, just like America today. Do we still have people who follow God in America? Absolutely. It's always a blessing to encounter them. We met a really uh, nice lady at the... Uh, I took um, John Kinzer and our guest speaker, uh, Stephen McDowell, a couple weeks ago. I, th was, I think it was a couple weeks ago. I lose track of time. After, after the service, we took them out to lunch. And this lady, this, she was one of the nicest servers I've met in I don't know how long. And just friendly, smiling. 
I couldn't say enough good things about her. And so finally at the end I said, are you a Christian? She goes, yes, I am. And I said, yeah, it's, it's pretty obvious. It's just emanating from you. What a blessing that was. Seems like we see that less and less. So when Daniel says all Israel, again, this is an all-encompassing statement. But, so the overwhelming and overriding truth here, in spite of the fact that there were some in Israel that still loved God and worshipped God and followed God, the vast majority did not. And you probably could say the same thing about America today. Not to mention many other parts of the world also. Have you heard this one? You know what? Just get off my case, man. Does, as long as I don't hurt anybody else, I should be able to do whatever I want. You heard that one? You know that doesn't work. Everything we do affects those around us. And so, yeah, the sins of the people of Israel, it affected the whole nation. Just like the sins in our nation today are affecting everyone, whether you're participating in it or not. And so this is a powerful, dynamic prayer that Daniel brings. And you could argue it would have taken somebody like Daniel to bring this kind of a prayer. Daniel, who really wasn't guilty of these things himself, but recognized that his people as a whole had failed God miserably, and he knew the reason that they were in captivity was because of their own sins. Not because God is a bad guy. He's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. And Daniel is bringing those things out in his prayer. And here's what's really interesting. Daniel recognizes that they're getting very close to the time when God is going to allow them to return. And yet, rather than just going hey, let's have a party, let's have a celebration. No, Daniel says we need to repent and get right with God. We can't go back into our land in the same fallen condition that we left it in. And so Daniel comes with brokenness, humility, and repentance, and we will finish his prayer next week. Let's stand. I'm going to ask as we bow our heads and hearts before the Lord, if you have a prayer request this morning, please raise your hand. Praise God. Lots of people. Father, first of all, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for amazing men of God like Daniel. Although he lived long, long ago, thousands of years ago, he has left us with a legacy and a heritage with tremendous words to study, to live by, to follow. Lord, help us to learn from this amazing prayer that Daniel offers up for his people. Lord, we pray that you'd help us in some way, even though we fall way short of men like Daniel. But Lord, you can still use us. You can still speak to us. You can speak through us. Lord, help us to be men and women of God like Daniel, Lord, that we could openly, willingly practice confession, repentance, humility. Lord, because we know that that leads to greatness. Maybe not the kind of greatness that the world looks for and seeks after but lord we can be great in your kingdom lord you said if you want to be great in my kingdom become the servant of all help us to learn that how to do that lord thank you god for your word thank you father for the many blessings you have given us 
But Father, right now I want to lift up those who've raised their hand for prayer. You know each one. You know what's going on in their lives. Lord, we talked this morning about confessing our sins to one another that we might be healed. And so, Lord, now, even though we're not going to be doing that out loud, I pray for anyone here today that is under the conviction of your Holy Spirit and recognize their need to confess and to repent, that they would just do that right now before you. We agree with them. And, Lord, we do. We all confess our sins before you. We are sinners, desperately in need of a Savior. And we thank you that you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, Father. We ask for your forgiveness. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy, and your forgiveness. And so, Lord, now, as we do that, then your word says that we could be healed. We could pray for one another. We could be healed. I pray for healing for physical illness, Lord, because those things can be a hindrance in being able to earn a living for our families and being able to get to church, being able to do other things that we need to do in life. They can hinder us in our ability to serve you. So we pray right now for physical healing, for everything from allergies and sinus infections and colds and coughs to cancer and leukemia and lung disease. Whatever it is, Father, you are the great physician. Nothing is too difficult for you. We ask you to pour out your healing upon your people. For your glory, we will give you the glory. We'll give you the praise. We'll tell everyone that my God healed me. And Lord, we know that ultimately we are healed because we have been healed in our hearts and our minds. We've been delivered, brought out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And so we've been healed from the terminal illness called sin. We thank you for that, God. Father, we lift up those with mental and emotional issues for healing there as well. Lord, for anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, please help us. Please deliver us. Bring healing to your people. Help us to learn how to trust you better to trust you more and more day by day and to rest in your love father we pray for relationships that have been damaged or broken that you would pour out your spirit upon those relationships that you give us wisdom and guidance on how to help bring about reconciliation and healing in marriages and friendships and workplace relationships in our neighborhoods lord that we could as much as possible be at peace with all men we ask for your help father and healing and repairing those relationships. And we pray, Lord, for uh, financial issues. Lord, we ask for your wisdom and guidance on how to be better stewards of our resources, how to use them wisely, manage them properly. And Lord, where we still fall short, we ask that you would graciously, lovingly provide according to your riches and glory that we might give you honor and praise for all we come in contact with about how our God provides for us, Lord. Please encourage those that are struggling. And we pray that you would help us to learn better how to connect with one another, to interact with one another, to help one another, because we know that is what we are called upon to do as your people. Thank you, God. We praise you. We honor you. We magnify your name. We ask you to receive now our final offering of praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 